Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. On this podcast, I talk to scholars, academics, journalists, some of the most fascinating people from around the world of ideas to tell you about the work that they do. I am also the host of a TV show called Adam Ruins Everything that airs on True TV. You can watch the show Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, or at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. Today's guest is Professor Courtney Young. She appeared on Adam Ruins Having a Baby, our season premiere, where she discussed the myths behind breastfeeding. Now, if you guys have had a baby or know anyone who has a baby, you know that this is a very fraught issue. People have very, very strong feelings about it. Well, on the show today, Courtney is going to walk us through the history of that issue and some of the myths behind breastfeeding and formula feeding and why you don't really have to worry all that much. Courtney is a political science professor at the University of Toronto and the author of a book on this issue called Lactivism. We're so excited to have Courtney join us today from Toronto, so let's get to the interview. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So how did you get involved in you know, studying the topic of breastfeeding, formula feeding, lactivism, this whole issue? Well, basically, I was inspired by breastfeeding myself and my own experiences. Um, But what's interesting from the perspective of political science is how quickly uh, we've moved from breastfeeding um, being something that's very unpopular, that's very infrequently done in society, not the norm, to being the norm. You know, so basically over the course of my lifetime, Um, people, when I was born, people predominantly formula fed, I was formula fed. Um, and then 40 years later, when I had my daughter, it didn't even cross my mind to feed her formula. It never occurred to me not to breastfeed. And so that's a really big shift in a very short period of time. Um, and so that's very interesting. How do we come to, to a whole new consensus as a society? And you were just interested in that as a political scientist. I was interested in that as a political scientist. And then, of course, I was also interested in how it became such a moral issue. Um, And then once I realized it was also a class issue and a race issue, uh, then, of then, of course, I really, you know, decided I needed to write a book about this before I was thinking just maybe a pamphlet, something, you know, (laughs) a brochure. Right. I mean, that's... something brief and angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's one of the reasons we did it on the show is is it's one of those topics that, you know, it seems so simple. Uh, it's just, hey, how do you feed your baby? Um, but then when you talk to, you know, I'm of the age where I have friends who are, you know, have, who have recently had uh, babies and, and this is a, an issue for them. And and they talk about how shocked they are about how high emotions run about it. It, it. it seems like it, you know, on the face of it, it would be a simple issue, but it's one that, that has all of these big issues and, and concerns um, bound up in it in, in incredibly complex ways. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that I write about in the book is how breastfeeding is so much more than a way to feed a baby that it's become uh, a marker of who we are as human beings. So for feminists, for example, breastfeeding has become a symbol of female empowerment, um, a symbol of something that women alone can do with their bodies. Uh, For women on the Christian right, it's a symbol of uh, submission 
submission to God's will. And they can cite 27 different places in the Bible where God um, enjoins women to breastfeed or invites breastfeeding women into the temple or Mm. whatever, mentions breastfeeding in some way. Uh, It's also an environmental issue because... um, because formula cans are bad for the environment and because of travel, etc. It's even an issue um, with the local food movement because, after all, what could be more local than, right. uh, than your breasts and breastfeeding? Um, so for many different groups, it's basically become, a, it's a symbol of so much more, of so many things that you believe in. Um, it's, you know, back to nature, it's against big business. Um, so it's a very, an issue for the left. Um, it's sort of, you know, the people who, one of the groups of people that, that are very, um, committed to breastfeeding are people who are, who go to farmers markets, who practice yoga, who, Mm. you know, wear their babies in a sling and they also breastfeed. So it's part of a whole um, package. Yeah, lifestyle and a package of things that go together that sort of demonstrate who you are as a human being. And and then, of course, it's also, you know, one of the, um, one of the signature uh, activities of attachment parenting. Um, mm. So it also indicates what kind of parent you are, not just what kind of person, but what kind of parent. So you said that, um, you know, in the uh, 40 years, uh, you know, we've gone from uh, formula feeding being the norm to formula feeding uh, not being the norm and breastfeeding being the norm. But then before that period, breastfeeding was also the norm before formula was invented. Um, And so it it looks like we're looking at a pretty quick rise and fall. Can you just sort of walk us through that that big cultural shift, like the rise of formula and then the fall of formula and, and how it happened? Sure. So formula was invented in the 1880s. Um, Until then, women who couldn't breastfeed did feed their babies alternatives, milk, you know, cow's milk, uh, sugar, water, some combination like that. And babies who were fed that often died of malnutrition. So starting in the 1880s, you have a situation where you can actually, there is an alternative to breastfeeding um, that will work. And you also have a lot of women entering the um, job market women going to work in factories, etc. So there was a class distinction between women who were breastfeeding and women who were formula feeding that Mm. had to do with women entering the workplace. And so formula became very popular over the course of the early 1900s until about the 1970s because it was convenient um, and also because it was considered to be the modern way to feed. So it was part of a larger move or trend toward medicalization. So at the same time that you have, you know, medicalization of childbirth, um, breastfeeding takes a second place to formula feeding and pediatricians become very involved in child feeding and every other form, every other aspect of um, child rearing. 
Right. And, and but it it started as I mean, the, you know, in the sort of days before formula feeding, as you said, there there were sort of not good options in the case of if you had a if you had a, a mother who was unable to breastfeed or or it, you know, there was this sort of problem of how do you feed children. And so formula feeding did initially save lives. And then it sort of became this uh, uh, medically approved way to make sure that children got proper nutrition. Absolutely. And formula improved as well, you know, over time, invented in the 1880s. But over time, they added, uh, they added vitamins, they added minerals, um, and formula got better and better. And it was, it was medical, right? It was scientific. It was something that was created in a a lab. And so doctors believed and mothers believed too, that it was better for their babies. But of course, you're right. It did initially save many, many lives. Um, doctors now estimate that about 15% of women don't produce enough milk to feed their babies. And, you know, so that number is likely to have remained steady over time. Probably historically, about 15% of women didn't make enough milk to feed their babies. Um, which means that those babies either were wet nursed, um, if they were lucky, if they if there was that option, or right. they were fed an alternative that that most likely didn't work, and they died of of malnutrition. And it makes sense, by the way, that you know you say that uh, uh, the for, you know formula feeding represented uh, you know the the modern lab tested way to feed a baby, etc. And you know I think. Today, in our day and age, we often have uh, we're often sort of repelled by that sort of idea of, you know, something being very, very modern or very, you know, scientific. And we want the more natural approach. But in the early part of part of the 20th century, I mean, that was those, you know, sort of innovations were the ones that saved lives. Right. It sounds like it was bound up with, you know, uh, I don't know, penicillin and vaccines and uh, uh, sterilization and all of these different technological advances that were demonstrably causing people to live longer and die less and, and reduce infant mortality and, and uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, taking us out of the dark ages in a sort of broad sense, uh, if you will. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You have this transition. You have, you're, you're in a time period in the early 20th century, or let's say the first half of the 20th century, not just the early part of the century, um, where uh, medical advances are really coming fast and furious, and they are very important, and they do they do play an important role in saving lives. Um, not least, you know, medicalized childbirth. We think of that now as a terrible thing, but um, you know, women died in childbirth very, very often. Uh, and the fact that they almost never die in childbirth is something that we now take for granted, but right. that was not true a hundred years ago. Yeah, it often feels like when we try to correct the mistakes of the present, um, that those mistakes were made in order to avoid a worse past. Does that make sense? It's <laughs> like, uh, it, you know, we're, we're concerned now about the over-medicalization of you know, these sort of natural processes, but that sort of initial urge to medicalize them came from the fact that people were dying sort of left and right in the in the olden days. And and while we shouldn't overlook the, you know, the the problems with our current way of doing things, um, you know, we should also acknowledge that we started doing them because they were they were stopping people from dying. Right. 
So now what we have is we, you know, we, we've just swung in the opposite direction. And um, in my opinion, and I, you know, a lot of people believe that, that we've swung too far in the opposite direction. Uh, so the idea that formula is evil and dangerous is too far in the opposite direction. Um, the idea that formula can kill babies is simply not true. We're very lucky to have formula. That doesn't mean formula is better, but it certainly doesn't mean that it's dangerous or that it is something that we should avoid. So let's so let's walk through how we got to uh, the present where that idea is uh, so pervasive. So in in the through through to the seventies, you said um, formula uh, sort of became the dominant way uh, to feed babies. What changed? Uh, you know what occurred that caused us to uh, end up in the opposite position? You know, forty odd years later. Well, it started in the 1950s. In 1956, uh, La Leche League was organized. And La Leche League was started by seven Catholic women who were, who were, who breastfed their babies and who believed in breastfeeding and resting control back from doctors to mothers, so getting control back over childbirth and over child rearing and over child feeding. Um, And so they started this organization as a support network for mothers who wanted to breastfeed, Uh, and that was 1956. And it grew quickly because uh, there were mothers who wanted to breastfeed, and at the time, it was very hard to breastfeed because most doctors were recommending formula feeding, um, and the norm was formula feeding. So you have La Leche League starts in 1956. Were, were those doctors? Uh, were the, were was the medical industry? You know, at all actually preventing women from breastfeeding or was it a matter of sort of taboo and norms and and people are going to look at you funny and your doctor's going to, you know, say, well, I advise you not to do this? Or was there were there really barriers in place at that point? I don't think there were really barriers in place except for the barriers of um, it being very hard to learn how to breastfeed Mm. in a situation where, you know, women no longer have easy access to their mothers and sisters. They might not live close by. Uh, Doctors are recommending against breastfeeding, recommending formula feeding. Um, And when babies are born in hospitals and they're fed formula immediately as soon as they're born, and then you get formula to take home with you, that sort of becomes your norm quickly and you're unable to then start a breastfeeding relationship with your baby after that in all likelihood. So that's Um, so that's a period when the pendulum is super, super in the formula direction. We it's almost we've (laughs) we've almost societally forgotten how to breastfeed in a way. Exactly. Exactly. And doctors know nothing. You know, the doctors were all men and they couldn't (laughs) possibly tell you how to breastfeed. They had no idea. And that's part of the reason um, that they're against it. Right. Because it's it's a it's an area in which they have no expertise. Right. And so they can't be the experts on how you're feeding your baby and what you're feeding your baby. They have no control over it. They have no, uh, it's sort of entirely out of their, out of their purview and, and they're yeah. sort of trying to keep everything within their jurisdiction. Yes. 
Yes. Got it. Exactly. Okay. All right. I mean, well, it's, it's we're talking about a, a time in which doctors routinely recommended that mothers weigh their children before and after a feeding, record the weights, and then give that information to the doctor when they went for routine checkups. Wow. So it's that level of scrutiny that mothers were under from the medical profession in in that period, in the 50s, 60s. Got it. Okay. So I understand the conditions under which La Leche League formed. So then what, what went on after that? Right. So La Leche forms and it wants to take control back from the medical profession. Um, that's in 1956. Uh, in the 1970s, you get the beginning of the feminist movement, the second wave feminist movement. And the feminist movement has a slightly different agenda, um, although in some ways surprisingly similar, right? Like rest control back from the medical profession. And so in the early 1970s, you have the publication of Our Bodies Ourselves, and feminism takes up breastfeeding as a feminist issue. Um, so the mothers of La Leche League were not feminists. They were not hippies in any way. It was a profoundly conservative movement. But in this one way, they did dovetail with the feminist movement. Mm. And then also in the 1970s, you have Nestle beginning to um, aggressively market formula in developing countries. And what happens in developing countries, Nestle is selling formula, powdered powdered formula that needs to be mixed with uh, water. And uh, many women in poor countries don't have access to clean or sterilized uh, drinking water. And so they're mixing formula with dirty water, and their babies are becoming sick. Uh, they're also um, over-diluting the formula because it's very, very expensive. So uh, they're basically feeding their babies just sort of, you know, water that's that's milky white, but nothing much more than water. Wow. So you have a big spike in um, infant malnutrition and mortality in the 1970s, and uh, doctors and um, public health advocates very quickly link that spike in infant mortality and malnutrition, link that to uh, formula feeding in developing countries. Let me ask, um, uh, because Nestle, Nestle is, this is the company that, that virtually invented formula, correct? Yes. Um, like, like Henry, like the, you know, I, Henri I, I, Nestlé. <laughs> Henri Nestlé. Uh, oui, great. Pardon. I, <laughs> and and so they they sort of pioneered uh, formula. They they made their whole. This is the Coca Cola of uh, of formula, basically. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, now now in so doing, uh, you know, initially uh, I'm sure they saved lives, right? But do you feel that? Uh, this, you know, action in the in uh, this was the 70s. This happened in these developing nations, correct? Yes. How big of an error was that on Nestle's part? I mean, were they really, you know, pushing uh, formula far more than they should have been? Was was this sort of, uh, you know, again, was this another example of that formula pendulum being too far, where where they were uh, uh, really pushing an unhealthy product in this case, or? Absolutely. I mean, this was an unbelievably irresponsible uh, campaign that they were 
undertaking in poor countries. Mm. They were they knew that they were selling a product that could not safely be used in the developing world. Really? I mean, for starters, women couldn't read the directions that were on the formula cans, right? Many women, most of the women who uh, were buying the product were illiterate. And it was, or it wasn't in the local language. It was in French or it was in English. So they were absolutely doing something that was morally reprehensible, definitely. And they knew that they were, you know, they knew what they were doing. Nestle hired women in developing countries and dressed them as nurses and sent them into hospitals where they would almost literally masquerade as nurses. Really? Yeah, you can see pictures. Um, You can easily find pictures of the Nestle nurses in South Africa. And then they they would go into hospitals posing as nurses, and they would go to um, the homes of new mothers uh, dressed as nurses, even though they were just... um, They were not. They were not medically trained in any way. They were just Nestle salespeople. Um, so there are all kinds of things like that. And Nestle, of course, you know, gave away, did what it did in wealthy countries is that it, it gave away, um, formula in hospitals, knowing that if mothers got formula in hospitals for free, they would continue to use that formula, um, once they, once they got home. Uh, it's the free sample mentality. Exactly. Well, the, uh, that is completely reprehensible, and and I also understand why. I mean, that's the this is sort of the the ultimate fear of the you know modern uh, you know capitalist uh, medical scientific uh, machine, right? Where uh, you know even though the product started out as something that would uh, uh, that really helped people and that saved lives, now it's sort of being pushed where it has no business being by by this uh, uh, company saying, well, now we're going to enlighten the masses and and bring them uh, the, you know, the light of our perfect uh, uh, product and, and lift them out of darkness, except that it has the product they're bringing has no place in that uh, uh, in that, in that context, community and yeah. ends up mm-hmm. causing a disaster. I mean, th- this is like textbook uh you know, when people want to start criticizing, you know, capitalism, colonialism, uh, the, all those different concepts, this is like a textbook case of that uh, of that run amok. Absolutely. And so starting in the 1970s, 1974, you have the the Nestle boycott starts. Um, and it's exactly because of the pub- publicizing um, this situation in developing countries. And that's where you get the beginning of the idea that formula is actually evil and dangerous. Um, because it was evil and dangerous in poor countries where formula was being over diluted and mixed with, um, you know, uh, unclean water. Right. Uh, it was, in fact, killing babies. Um, you know, it may have killed even millions of babies. There wow. are no statistics about that, but it definitely was killing babies. And and so uh, and I'm so glad that we're talking about this because this was not a, a nuance of the story that we had time to get into on our show where we're you know telling the story of formula in sort of seven minutes because it sounds like what happened was this very real malfeasance on the part of Nestle which you know clearly deserved the boycott 
Um, you know, do, you know, people needed their consciousness raised about this issue. The word needed to be spread about it. It ended up giving formula this sort of like cast or taint of, you know, the idea that that formula itself was dangerous, which is not actually the case. Um, despite the fact that this company acted very poorly, the uh, the idea of formula generally acquired a, a negative uh, impression that it perhaps didn't deserve. Is that correct? Right. Well, so formula, you know, if you if you mix formula properly with clean water, there's nothing dangerous about formula. And yes, so the pendulum swung, swung and it swung um, very hard against against formula companies. Got it. And so what how did that uh, uh, how did that take place over the ensuing decades? Well, um, the the first thing that happened was a, uh, a non, an NGO in England published a pamphlet called uh, Nestle Kills Babies, huh. and <laughs> this pamphlet became uh, very widely um, available. Lots and lots of people read it. The Nestle boycott started in the UK. It spread all over Europe, um, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, um, Etc. There were even there were hearings against the Nestle Corporation. Um, I think it was Ted Kennedy conducted hearings in wow. the 1970s against the Nestle Corporation, congressional hearings or Senate hearings um, that were very very damning um, for Nestle. The the president of Nestle was compelled to admit on television that what they were doing was wrong and dangerous um and that they knew that they were that they were sending formula to countries where women did not have clean water and where it would clearly kill babies uh so this was a you know a really set formula back um and then in this period formula becomes or rather breastfeeding t- becomes a symbol of the fight against capitalism and big business. Mm-hmm. So precisely because of, you know, greedy capital uh, and big business doing these horrible things in developing countries, breastfeeding becomes an issue of the left and it becomes a form of activism. And so that's a really interesting moment. It totally makes sense why it would as well. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the narrative, well, you've got this company that's pushing this product in this horrible way that that killed you know so many babies, and they want us to pay for uh, this formula. You've got doctors uh, pushing it, and and you know now when you have a baby, you know the corporate America and the medical industry wants you to pay through the nose for the privilege of feeding your baby when you've got the you've got the food right on you. You can make it yourself, and what's you know it, it's it's the ultimate. Uh, uh, take you know take power back from uh, the capitalist machine sort of uh, uh, vibe. I mean, I I absolutely uh, you know understand why uh, why that happened. It right. makes total sense as a narrative. Well, I and mean, that's the great story about you know the rise of breastfeeding or the the comeback of breastfeeding is that it all makes sense. Every step along the way is is a good step. Up and right. up until a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so describe that point to us. Where where do you feel that uh, you know the uh, where we cross that threshold and and what happened? Well, it's hard to say. Um, in the late nineteen nineties, so so at this point we've got La Leche 
League, we've got uh, Feminism, and we've got the Nestle Boycott. So there are three moments or three catalysts to the breastfeeding movement at this point, uh, and three different uh, sort of frameworks or ideologies that breastfeeding is attached to. It's attached to a back-to-nature sort of Christian worldview. It's attached to a feminist worldview. And it's attached to a leftist anti-corporate worldview. Mm-hmm. And now you're we're in the 1990s or so. And in the 1990s, along comes attachment parenting. And attachment parenting, starting in the 1990s, becomes the most popular parenting philosophy, in, um, in especially in North America, and also Australia and New Zealand, uh, less so in Europe. But attachment parenting is... It's really, it's, it's what it sounds like. <laughs> and it's attachment, it's, it's parenting very closely. Uh, and, so, and there are three sort of main prongs or commitments that people have who are attachment parents. The first is baby wearing, which is literally wearing your baby in a sling rather than putting your right. baby in a stroller. I have seen uh, this. I have seen this in person. I have seen people doing it in New York and Los Angeles many a time uh, with a baby. They strap their babies to them in a yes. Bjorn, I believe is what it's called. Well, the Bjorn is not even. If you're a real attachment parent, you really like to use a sling. Ah. The Bjorn is a little too much of a contraption. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Especially on the coasts, east and west coast, people like attachment parenting. Okay. So there's the sling. There's co-sleeping, which means uh, sleeping in bed with your baby. If you're an attachment parent, you do not use a crib for your baby. Hmm. And the third third sort of uh, component of attachment parenting is breastfeeding. Um, And it's not just breastfeeding, but it's baby-led weaning or child-led weaning. So it's breastfeeding for two or three years. Um, It's a very serious commitment to breastfeeding. Hmm. And it's with attachment parenting. I mean, you can get the impression, as I describe the tenets of attachment parenting, you you might have realized that you can really only practice attachment parenting if you're fairly well off. It's mm. really full-time parenting and you can't do it if you have a job as as the mother. It's right, really the time a commitment. commitment. Of all that. Oh, absolutely. The time commitment is complete. It's it's a 24-hour a day job 7 days a week attachment parenting. And so breastfeeding, then I think it's in that period that breastfeeding really becomes um, a commitment that is primary among women in the middle and upper middle classes. And that's when you start to see a very sharp division in breastfeeding numbers between women who are wealthier and who can rely on a, you know, single income household and women who are poorer and have to work and might might not have the time to be either attachment parenting or breastfeeding. That's, that's fascinating because it, it sounds like what 
what happened was when when formula when formula initially came on the scene, that was the more sort of affluent modern choice, right? Because you it cost money to do, and and it's like, oh well, I'm not, you know, I'm not a beast of the field. I'll uh, you know feed my uh, uh, I'll I'll feed my baby pure science that I purchased with my currency. <laughs> you know, like it that, that's you know that's the sort of like more upper middle class choice. Um, but then uh, then the, when the pendulum swung back, breastfeeding became the uh, upper class choice because it required so much time. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. It's because it required time, attention, um, and also it's part of a back to nature movement. So right. it's like organic food and um, and you know hormone free milk and stuff like that. So it's it's part of um, feeding your baby only only the best and only what's natural. And so that sort of cultural shift. Uh, is you know started with attachment parenting and now it's what sort of taken taken hold in a broader way like like among the public at large. Well, yeah, I mean attachment parenting has taken hold in a broader way. Um, there aren't that many people who are really fully able to practice attachment parenting to do everything that's required. Uh, but as a general philosophy, I would say it's the dominant contemporary philosophy of. Of parenting, like you might um, even you might even do it even if you might even do part of it even if you don't know what attachment parenting is you've sort of absorbed culturally some of the absolutely it's caused a sea change. I I would say most most parents today in the United States in Canada um, even in Europe most parents are sort of practicing a half baked version of attachment <laughs> parenting. Got it. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm here talking to Professor Courtney Young. We will be back in just a moment, so stick around. Following the news is hard and it sucks. How do you know which stories are important? Which sources do you trust in this post-truth world of reactionary journalism? I'm Brent Black. And I'm Travis McElroy. And we host a podcast called Trends Like These. We cover trending news stories. We debunk misleading clickbait headlines. And we always try to throw in a little bit of good news. In our quest for truth! So join us every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back to Anna Maroon's Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Professor Courtney Young, the author of Lactivism. Well, so let's talk about um, the uh, uh, a topic that I'm sure is on everybody's mind who's who's listening to this and, and wondering when we're going to get to it, um, because there are so many um, health advantages that are claimed for uh, breastfeeding. Um, that uh, And this is what I think, you know, at least uh, friends of mine who I've spoken to who, who are trying to, you know, decide how to feed their children feel inundated by, that it uh, helps with, you know, this or that medical condition or it's better for your baby in way – X, Y, Z, um, uh, you know, what are those, uh, what are those claims and is there any validity to them? So the claims are actually really astonishing. Um, when I was writing my book, I, you know, went out and tried to find what are the things that people claim for, um, are the benefits of breastfeeding. And it literally is almost everything, um, including, you know, heart disease, Crohn's disease, obesity, intelligence, cancer, uh, Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, infections, wow. uh, 
everything, almost everything, you can find some article somewhere that claims that breastfeeding the, reduces the risk of X. Hmm. Um, so the claims are extreme. But but the different the difference seems to be that that uh, you know I mean I think we all know how you know health studies work. There's there's uh, probably a claim for you know for every substance that it reduces every disease somewhere out there. Someone's done a a study that claims something. But the one in this case the thing in this case is that is that people uh, fervently believe that it does. Right, right. This is information that is routinely um, repeated and and. And repeated in important places by people who ought to know better. So it is it is surprising. Most of the research uh, on breastfeeding is either weak or inconclusive, and the reason is that people who do research on breastfeeding don't do um, double blind uh, tests, so they don't compare breastfeeding mothers with non-breastfeeding mothers in a way that's randomized. Hmm. They don't do randomized controlled trials because they can't randomize some mothers to breastfeed and some mothers not to breastfeed. So the problem is that the mothers who breastfeed also have many other things in common. Mothers who breastfeed are also less likely to work. They're less likely to send their children to daycare. They're less likely to smoke. Etc. Etc. So I there see. are a lot of other things that those mothers also happen to have in common. And if you compare mothers who breastfeed with mothers who don't breastfeed, those other things could be the reason for the difference between the breastfeeding and the non-breastfeeding babies, the outcomes. Um, so what you have to do if you have those kinds of studies is you have to control for the other variables that those mothers have in common. And the more variables you need to control for, the larger the numbers of the women in the studies need to be, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there are very, very few studies that actually have enough women to control for all of the other things that they would need to control for. So you have some studies that control for class. You have some studies that control for whether women are in the workplace. Other studies that control for smoking. So you're really comparing in many in many cases, you're comparing different categories of women. You don't have, you're not comparing the same thing. So given the paucity and the weakness of our actual research on breastfeeding, what is it that we do know for sure? We know that breastfeeding uh, reduces the risk of infection. So there okay. are three different types of infections that babies are vulnerable to, ear infections, lung infections, and gastrointestinal infections. And not only is there research that shows um, that babies who breastfeed have fewer infections, but doctors have also, doctors and medical researchers have also figured out exactly what the logic is of the ways in which breast milk reduces the risk of infection. So they actually know how, know how it works. So we're sure that breastfeeding reduces the risk of infection. And so that's a real effect and a real benefit that we uh, know about. That's a real effect and a real benefit. However, it is a very, very modest benefit and effect. So, for example, to explain how modest it is, um, 
the figures that are given are that six women would have to breastfeed exclusively for six months in order to prevent one ear infection. <laughs> okay. So that is to say it has an effect at the level of the population as a whole, right? If you're a breastfeeding advocate, if you're a public health advocate, and you've got six women breastfeeding exclusively for six months, you multiply that exponentially, you've got six million women breastfeeding exclusively for six months, that actually adds up to quite a few ear infections, mm -hmm. right? But if you're one woman making a calculation about the impact of your breastfeeding on your baby, the chances are that your breastfeeding won't ever avert any ear infection right. in your own baby. That's a very that's actually a very nice way to break down uh, the issue because I think a lot of times when when we're talking about these sort of public health issues, there's a difference between what you know we want to encourage as a society and what we want to choose individually. And so it sounds like this is enough of a benefit where we where we would say, hey, we want to encourage people to breastfeed. Go go out and do it. It'll uh, result in a in a you know a slightly healthier population overall because we'll be preventing ear infections and therefore I guess not using antibiotics and stuff like that that you know not having to treat those ear infections. Right. But if you're an individual woman, you don't you know saying, oh geez, do I have to breastfeed because I've been told about this uh, you know about about how it's you know I'm gonna. Uh, be hurting my baby if I don't X Y Z. It it doesn't sort of put an ethical obligation on you to uh, you know breastfeed your child if that's extremely difficult or impossible for you to do. That's absolutely right. But you can see where the problem lies is that people believe that breastfeeding improves your life, the life chances of your baby. Um, exponentially, people believe that it's absolutely crucial for child health and development. And if if we as a society believe that it's absolutely crucial for child health and development, and if we also believe that all women can breastfeed, and those are basically the, the twin um, tenets of the breastfeeding movement that all women can breastfeed and that breastfeeding is crucial for infant health and development, then of course, we're going to believe that all women should breastfeed, not that right. this should be something that should be left up to individual choice. And, um, you know, weighing weighing the circumstances in your life and deciding whether it's a good choice for you. Right. I, mean, I read a, I read a, a, a blog post once, you know, when I was sort of, you know, researching this issue and, and trying to see what people were writing, you know, in this space, I, I found a, a blog post by, you know, a, a self-described mommy blogger. So I'm not saying that derogatorily. That was how she described her own site. But it was a an article arguing, you know, uh, hey, people say it's not my business uh, if I breastfeed my child or not, or it's not your business if I breastfeed my child or not. Here's why I think it is my my business, whether or not you breastfeed your child. Because if you don't breastfeed your child, it's uh, not going to develop mentally well enough and it's, uh, it's you know, going to uh, be of below average intelligence and it's going to have all these other problems. And then I'm going to uh, uh, suffer the social effects of your, uh, uh, you know, when your baby grows up and it's, uh, you know, it 
has poor impulse control and it has uh, behavioral problems and mental problems, that's going to affect me. So, yes, it you do have to breastfeed. I, I was sort of shocked by that argument because this was a person saying that it was it's it's an ethical obligation for every single person to breastfeed and we're able to put that obligation on each other. Um, and this was someone writing this very sincerely on a uh, uh, not very fringy uh, at least to me, it didn't look like a very fringy site. It looked like, a, you know, it was a, uh, a site that's in this sort of like blogosphere of uh, mothers writing about the issue. Um, and so that's when it really struck me how uh, uh, how strongly and how sort of ideological this has gotten. That's absolutely right. And that is that is not a fringe opinion at all. That is the mainstream opinion. Hmm. So, and what are what are the uh, negative effects of that, uh, uh, you know, of that uh, uh, opinion or that way of thinking? Well, the negative impact is on women who either choose not to breastfeed or who can't breastfeed um, because they feel terrible. They feel like they're um, failures as mothers. They feel shamed. Uh, so we have a whole culture now in which women feel that if they don't breastfeed, they're really failing as parents. And one of the ways in which this is, well, it's problematic in a lot of different ways. You know, mothers, new mothers are very, very vulnerable. Um, and so they feel terrible about this. They're worried, they're scared, and they don't know what they're doing. And so they take advice um, in 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 ways where, or at times where they feel like they would otherwise be very sure, you know, women who are otherwise very sure of themselves become very vulnerable and insecure right after they've given birth. Um, and I, so, understand. I, I would too. I mean, I, it's, that's completely understandable. I mean, everyone's always... Everyone is always worried that they're not doing whatever they're supposed to be doing well enough. You know, that, that's sort of a general. Right. Uh, well, a general... that's magnified yes. when when you've had a baby, especially I can't imagine. your first yeah. baby. So, um, you know, there are there are um, psychiatrists who are concerned with postpartum depression or who focus on postpartum depression who believe that the pressure to breastfeed is an exacerbating condition um, that leads to or contributes to postpartum depression. So that's a big worry now is that it's um, it's increasing the incidence of postpartum depression. Um, mothers who are, have been unable to breastfeed or unable to produce enough milk to feed their babies adequately have told me that it exacerbates body dysmorphia. So women who already have um, body issues or who are worried that their bodies are inadequate or don't look right or don't you know respond well, um, this this is something that gets much much worse uh, after mm. pregnancy and postpartum if they also can't breastfeed. Um, so it feeds into a whole um, a whole nest of other issues that women are facing. Um, so that's that's part of the reason that it's bad. Um, but it's also bad because it feeds into class and race issues. So it really reinforces a lot of the um, a lot of the stereotypes and um, 
and hierarchies that already exist in our societies. So in the United States, for example, poor women breastfeed much less than um, wealthy women, and African-American women breastfeed much less than white women. And all of those breastfeeding figures are always reported by race and by class in the United States. So everybody know every year when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention publish their breastfeeding figures, you know, how are we doing in the United States, they always publish those broken down by race and class. And that kind of, those kinds of figures um, uh, reinforce stereotypes about the pathology of the black family and um, the pathologies of poor families and basically reinforce the idea that white, wealthy, and um, upper upper middle class and middle class families are not only better parents, but better citizens. I also know that you uh, uh, have written about how uh, the emphasis on breastfeeding that uh, you know certain large health organizations like the like the WHO have promoted have have uh, have caused problems. Can you uh, tell us about that at all? Oh yeah, starting in nineteen in nineteen eighty one, um, the CDC first reported or reported the first cases of AIDS. So AIDS first came to the United States, or we first realized that uh, AIDS existed in 1981. I I kind of have a hunch that the rest of this story isn't going to go well. (laughs) It's not going to go well. It gets worse. (laughs) If you you started with, in 1981, AIDS was first reported. Right. So please, please go on. In 1982, doctors started to suspect that HIV could be transmitted through breast milk because... You get your first cases of children who have HIV and are developing AIDS-like symptoms, and they have not in any other way been exposed to HIV. So doctors start to suspect in 1982, and in 1985, the well-known medical journal, The Lancet, published the first research demonstrating that HIV was present in breast milk and that babies were um, uh, developing HIV um, through because of exposure to breast milk. So 1985, uh, we know that HIV is transmitted through breast milk. So that's 1985. In 1985, the CDC and public health organizations in Canada, Europe, uh, Australia, and New Zealand all immediately changed their recommendations to ensure that women who are HIV positive will not breastfeed. So that information is disseminated in um, Europe, the United States, etc., in 1985, and those countries immediately changed their policies about HIV and breastfeeding. But the World Health Organization and UNICEF do not change their policies, and they continue to recommend that women breastfeed regardless of their HIV status. And in the 1980s and into the 1990s, you have countries in sub-Saharan Africa where 30% of pregnant women are HIV positive. Mm. In places like Uganda, Mozambique, um, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana, 
uh, and other places in um, you know Central African Republic, etc. Very very high rates of HIV um, infection in women who are pregnant and who are breastfeeding, and the World Health Organization and UNICEF not only continue to recommend that women who are HIV positive should still breastfeed but they actually publish misinformation about the relationship between HIV and breastfeeding. So they say things like, uh, in in one publication, um, breastfeeding, the the fact that HIV could be transmitted through breastfeeding is um, covered in a section of the publication called Spreading False Myths. And in other cases, they say it has been known to happen, but it's very rare. And this is at a point when all the medical journals are publishing information showing that um, HIV is transmitted through breastfeeding in 14 to 29% of cases. So not every baby whose mother is HIV positive will develop HIV. Uh, it depends on the viral load of the mother. It depends on it depends on a number of things, but importantly, the viral load of the mother. I mean, for but for a disease like uh, uh, HIV/AIDS, that's I mean, fourteen percent chance is is plenty that uh, plenty to avoid. Right. So it's between fourteen and twenty nine percent is the number that they come up with in nineteen ninety two. So between 1985 and 1992, they don't really know what percentage of babies are become are developing HIV through breastfeeding. But in 1992, they come up with this number, 14 to 29 percent. Um, and, and so, why would the why would the WHO uh, avoid, you know, spreading that information or not change their recommendations or, or what possible reason? I mean. The WHO is is a uh, you know that it's an organization dedicated to public health. I, I don't really understand. Right. So World Health Organization. Right. That's what the WHO is. Health. Right. So the reason is that following the Nestle uh, boycott and Nestle aggressively marketing in poor countries. Organizations like UNICEF and the World Health Organization invested heavily in breastfeeding advocacy in poor countries Mm -hmm. as a way of combating the formula marketing that was also happening in poor countries. And it makes total sense that they would do so. Yes, absolutely. So you have breastfeeding. So they hired breastfeeding advocates in very high positions at the World Health Organization, and they put them in charge of um, infant Uh, feeding programs in poor countries. And those people were in charge of those programs when it was reported that HIV. So when 1981 and 1985 come along, um, the WHO and UNICEF are being controlled by breastfeeding advocates who firmly believe that breastfeeding is the solution to many of the infant malnutrition and mortality problems in poor countries. They believe that breastfeeding is basically the silver bullet. And they're concerned that HIV is going to derail their breastfeeding campaigns. 
I mean, and I totally understand that if you're if you're committed to that uh, uh, to that cause, um, especially with good reason, where you're like, hey, we got a you know we had babies dying because of this uh, problem with dirty water and formula. We need them to breastfeed, and you're you're devoting your your life or your decade to that uh, to that cause. If if the I understand why you know the HIV AIDS issue comes over the transom, and you're like, hey, this is just a speed bump. We don't want to. Uh, you know, we don't want to derail our whole initiative here. So maybe let's downplay this at the very least. I, I, I totally understand. That's a very human response to that happening. Right. Except that it happened for 13 years. Okay. <laughs> so for 13 years, they continued to recommend that women who are HIV positive should breastfeed their babies. And for 13 years... You have, you know, millions of babies dying. Wow. Well, I mean, this goes to show the the issue with these pendulum swings that I love that um, that metaphor that you used at the beginning, because it it shows how when we go too extreme in one direction or the other, or we get too set in our ways. It, it can the horrible effects in both directions. You know, it's absolutely neither of these is to say that breastfeeding is dangerous or that formula feeding is dangerous. They had when taken too far or when treated as the only uh, solution to be promoted and spread across the world. They ended up having these, you, you know, uh, bad side effects in certain areas but um, the the solution is to is to be inclusive of both approaches, right? Well, so uh, l- let me just ask because uh, uh, we uh, we are running short on time. But I I, I want to know how you summarize your uh, research and uh, uh, your feeling on uh, breastfeeding versus formula feeding overall. What is the is there a, a, a you know a log line that you know if you're if you're in an elevator with uh, with an expectant mother for uh, for forty five seconds you know and and uh, she happens to ask your advice what do you say? I say if you want to breastfeed and if you find that breastfeeding is easy for you and it works for you and it works for your baby and your family, by all means do it. But if you find that it doesn't work for you or if it makes you uncomfortable or you don't want to do it, switch to formula and don't feel guilty about it. I'll be honest. I love any message that that ends with "and don't feel guilty about it." Uh, <laughs> I, I think at the very least, at the very least, we could all do with less guilt about our choices. Um, and uh, especially uh, so I, around parenting. Yes, a hundred percent. Well, thank you so much, Courtney, for for talking to us about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you once again to Courtney for coming on the show. That is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris, and if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. And once again, Adam Ruins Everything is back. We got all new episodes Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, 9 p.m. Central, most likely, right? And, And who knows, maybe it even airs in mountain time, you know? never even know people if you live in the mountains please send me an email and let me know when the show airs where you are and then i'll include it next time i do this promo uh (laughs) and no matter where you live if you don't have a tv you can find clips and full episodes of the show at truetv.com slash adam ruins everything and the watch true tv app thank you guys for listening we'll see you in two weeks bye-bye maximumfun.org 
comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.